Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Stay tuned to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the weekly podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, as we sit down with Dr. Ben Shaw to discuss the Old Testament and Princeton Seminary. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I am your host, William Hill, and in studio today I do have the pleasure of welcoming one of my professors, my Hebrew professor and Old Testament professor, Dr. Ben Shaw, and he'll be talking about his theology conference lecture that'll be coming up here in a little bit under a month. Dr. Shaw has his MDiv from Pittsburgh Theological Seminary as well as his PhD from Bob Jones University. And as I mentioned earlier, he is one of my professors, so I will be on my best behavior, I promise, as we do this discussion today. So Dr. Shaw, I'm glad to have you here to talk about this subject, and welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, Dr. Shaw, you're going to be talking about, as, as I indicated, the Spring Theology Conference this year is on the subject of Princeton and how Greenville Seminary was modeled after the Princeton model. And your topic of discussion um, may be one that a lot of people aren't real familiar with. A, a lot of people aren't very familiar with Princeton, except they think they hear Princeton, they think liberal theology, they think of, a, of a, a, an institution that, that fell a long, long way from its roots. But then you tack on the idea of Princeton in the Old Testament. What are we talking about? Well, what we're talking about here is that the faculty at Princeton in the years between 1812 and 1929, uh, some of the standout faculty were actually the Old Testament faculty. Uh, the names that are normally associated with Princeton are the names of Archibald Alexander and Samuel Miller, of course, the the original professors, mm. and Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield. Uh, so the uh, and what most people don't know is that for the first two years, uh, Archibald Alexander was the Old Testament professor. Of course, at the beginning of the uh, at the beginning of the seminary. He was the everything professor. He taught church history, he taught practical theology, he taught systematics, and he taught Old Testament and New Testament. Now, Old Testament was not his specialty, but he did, uh, I I think he was certainly competent in Hebrew and in the Old Testament uh, literature. Uh, He was familiar with the primary, secondary literature in the Old Testament, and that comes forth in the lectures as they have been recorded, uh, obviously not verbal or, or vocal recordings, but uh, as students recorded them, and those have been preserved. And uh, some of those things are available in the archives, the Princeton Library. Uh, but uh, he then he was really succeeded by Charles Hodge. And again, we think of Charles Hodge as the systematic theologian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Hodge, uh, through most of the 1820s, was the professor of Old Testament uh, at Princeton, and uh, you know that was his area of responsibility. And the time that he spent in Germany, uh, many assume that he went over to Germany to study theology, but his primary purpose 
was to study the Old Testament. Uh, the developments that were taking place in Old Testament study in those days were primarily coming out of Germany, and it was the the view of not only the faculty at the at the seminary but the trustees as well that the faculty ought to be well trained in the latest things that are going on in theology and its related subjects. So that Hodge went over to study uh, Old Testament, and uh, while he was over there, he also was, I don't know whether privileged is the right word, but he did uh, become familiar with Schleiermacher, who who is known as the father of liberalism as a theologian, uh, but again, as I say, his primary purpose uh, was to to pick up uh, the instruction in Old Testament. Now, he was succeeded by J.A. Ale- Alexander, the son of Archibald, uh, and Ar- Archibald uh, held the fort there for another 15 years or so as the Old Testament professor, uh, ceding eventually to William Henry Green, who is probably the primary name associated with Old Testament studies at Princeton Seminary mm-hmm. uh, because he taught for 50 years, uh, 19, or 1850 to 1900. Now, the, the reason that uh, Old Testament Princeton is important is because, well, in a certain sense, in the 19th century, very much like today, if you look at Westminster and the developments that we've seen over the last four or five years uh, with the removal of Peter Enns from the faculty there and all of that uh, related hubbub, um, you know, Peter Enns taught Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jack Collins teaches Old Testament at Covenant Seminary. And in the 19th century, uh, in addition to the developments in liberal theology that we see coming out of Schleiermacher and others, there were also liberal theological developments that were largely being fueled by the developments in Old Testament study. And in, in addition to that, not only were there these liberalizing developments that were taking place in Old Testament study, you also had – uh, the 19th century was, if you will, the age of Indiana Jones. Uh, it was the age of the birth of archaeology as a science and as a discipline, but most of the archaeolo- early archaeologists were cowboy types. Uh, they were out there. They had an interest in uh, ancient things, but they, they were largely self-funded. Uh, and so they went to the places that interested them, uh, and the results of those early archaeological investigations were uh, finding the uh, remains at uh, the Sumerian remains at Sumer, uh, the remains of both Babylonian and Assyrian uh, civilizations in Mesopotamia. And, of course, uh, early in the 19th century, roughly corresponding with the uh, founding of Princeton Seminary, was the deciphering of the Egyptian hieroglyphics. Uh, Of course, the hieroglyphics had been known for centuries, 
but nobody had ever known how to read them. And with Napoleon's uh, excursion into Egypt and the finding of the Rosetta Stone, it was, it was that that led to the uh, to the deciphering of the hieroglyphics. And suddenly, with the Egyptian sources, the Akkadian sources, Akkadian is the language uh, for Babylonian and Assyrian literature. Uh, all of a sudden, there is literary material available from biblical times that is not the Bible. And in German circles, with the influence of the Enlightenment, the first set of assumptions that these men came with is that the Bible was a human book, Mm. a strictly human book. Mm. And as such, they wanted to have other sources, other human sources that they could compare it with. Well, as I say, the finding of the Egyptian and the Mesopotamian material provided that sort of comparative literature. Secondly, and this isn't talked about much in the literature, but it's clearly there, there was in uh, the in German theological circles in the 19th century a sort of, uh, well, it, what we would call it today anti-Semitism. Mm. There was a conviction that uh, uh, Judaism was a corrupt religion, uh, and that the Jews could not have done anything original. And so their literature that's reflected in the Old Testament must have been borrowed from other sources so that when uh, these other sources began to become available, the, uh, the various Assyrian and Babylonian uh, myths and epics and legends, the Old Testament scholars in Germany began to compare those things with the Old Testament and say, see, this is where the Old Testament gets this stuff. Uh, and and they, they definitely saw the Old Testament literature as secondary to the Babylonian, uh, the, the Assyrian, and the Egyptian sources. Well, that view, that perspective begins to make its way from Germany through the continent into England and into uh, the United States in the 19th century. And the the faculty at Princeton was committed to dealing with that, uh, given the understanding, of course, that, that Princeton Seminary was committed to the Westminster Confession of Faith and, mm-hmm. the, and the catechisms, as well as uh, their commitment to um, a... a philosophy or view of philosophy that many discount now, but was certainly uh, common in the uh, early 19th century American uh, theological circles, and that's uh, Scottish common sense realism. Mm. Uh, that, uh, And so in, in a certain sense, at the point that Princeton is established, there's already a growing attack on the Old Testament. And part of the responsibility of the Old Testament faculty at Princeton then is to defend against that attack, to lay out uh, the to to be able to deal uh, with the uh, these new discoveries, to deal with the sources that are in these other languages, and to defend both the originality and the inspiration of the Old Testament. And so that's in if you look at the course lectures and the course notes. That's the kind of thing that you will find characteristic of most of that material. It seems um, 
as I'm listening to you talk, and 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 for the listeners, uh, I, I mean, I'll admit <clears throat> candidly and upfront that um, I'm relatively a novice when it comes to this material, this information. So I'm uh, learning with you, as it were. But it sounds like Dr. Shaw that even in today's world, uh, back in the 19th century, certainly, but even today, it seems like the greatest attack on Scripture seems to be centered on the Old Testament for whatever reason. Do you find that to be a, a rather accurate statement? I, I think that's fair, uh, partly because the – I think partly simply the size of the Old Testament. Uh, it's roughly three times the size of the New Testament, and it covers a period uh, of roughly a 1,000 years, mm. uh, the time of Moses being – well, actually much longer than that going back, uh, of course, to creation. But – the Old Testament was written, uh, certainly in the in conservative views, uh, by over over a period of about a thousand years. Uh, the earliest books coming from Moses in the fifteenth century B.C., and the latest book probably Malachi. Again, that's kind of a traditional dating, uh, but around four hundred B.C. So for a, a millennium, and plus, you know, what does it cover? It covers the history of a people uh, during that time, and. It covers. It goes back to to the beginning of of time with creation, and so. Uh, but and it gives us, if you will, tantalizing glimpses into the contemporary civilizations. We get a glimpse of Egypt. We get a glimpse of Assyria. We get a glimpse of Babylon, and we get a glimpse of Syria. Uh, and people are curious about about those kinds of things, wishing, for example, that the Old Testament told us more, but, of course, it mm. doesn't. But with these archaeological discoveries, uh, we begin to learn more uh, about that. And, of course, some of the things that are discovered, uh, when looked at from a certain perspective, begin to call into question the truthfulness and the accuracy of the Old Testament. And so uh, if a person already has, if you will, leanings toward a, a liberal theological view uh, that's going to be something that's going to be desirable to them. Sure. Now, when you say a liberal theological view, I realize that this is a term that we we tend to throw around. It's a word that I think on the surface we generally understand that they're the bad guys. Liberal theology, they're the bad guys. Um, is there anything to benefit from those kinds of attacks? In other words, do the attacks on... Per- as we were talking about the Old Testament itself and some of the historical issues that come from that with these archaeological discoveries, does that help the so-called conservative side as they defend the authenticity of Scripture? Uh, Well, yes and no. Uh, People often look to archaeological finds as verifying uh, the reality of uh, Old Testament events or biblical occurrences. And unfortunately, most archaeological finds are what I would call mute. Uh, Most archaeological finds are uh, collections of pots, broken pots, bones, Mm -hmm. tools of various sorts. Now, obviously, uh, with the uh, Mesopotamian and Egyptian sources. We have lots of written sources, but unfortunately, even those written sources are not always 
as relevant to the Old Testament as we might like. Uh, you know, there are thousands of clay tablets from Mesopotamia that are nothing more than economic records, business accounts, uh, credit card slips, if you wish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and while those are informative about how uh, trade was carried on in those days, it doesn't really illuminate the Old Testament one way or the other. And, and so I, I guess what I would say is that uh, the archaeological finds can uh, confirm the Old Testament. They can also sometimes call into, uh, into question some of the statements in the Old Testament, again, depending on, uh, on how it's read. But we always have to remember that given the, you know, the amount we know about Mesopotamian culture, uh, ancient Mesopotamian culture and ancient Egyptian culture, the amount that we know now is vastly more uh, than people knew 200 years ago. Sure. But there's a vast amount more that we don't know. Uh, the sources that we found are, frankly, limited uh, and scattered. Uh, there are, uh, on one stela, there's the which is a stone pillar with uh, writing on it, usually commemorating an event. We have the part of the annals of Sennacherib, mm. uh, who was an Old Testament period Assyrian king. Well, we have part of the annals of Sennacherib. Uh, we have part of the Assyrian king records, but we only have part. And there are other parts that we would like to have. Uh, and so while we know a great deal more than we used to about these things, we don't know nearly as much as we would like to, uh, and and frankly, sometimes what we do know can be misleading mm. because it doesn't take into account what we don't know. Sure. Now, you mentioned some of the statements that could call into question you know, the Scriptures, and certainly, well, obviously, we come from a tradition and a position that the Scriptures are, of course, the authentic and reliable Word of God. But what's what kind of things happened maybe around this period, the 19th century, and when we're talking about Princeton, the things that they had to defend, what kinds of things, what specific attacks were being levied against the Old Testament at this point? Well, the I think the first thing was simply the, uh, the charge of the unoriginality uh, of the Old Testament, the mm-hmm. idea that the Old Testament simply borrowed – uh, from Babylonian and Assyrian sources, and, and so, and once you do that, I mean, once you say it's borrowed and you question the originality, then pretty much all bets are off as far as everything else. Right. Would you say, would you say that's true? Right. Uh, so, for example, in the, uh, you know, right now there are a lot of books being published on the historical Adam, mm-hmm. uh, Collins' book, N's book. I'm sure that within the next five years there are going to be another two dozen books at least that will be published on that issue. Uh, well, in the 19th century, the, uh, the issue was which came first, Babel or the Bible? And so if, if you went to Google and searched Babel versus Bible, there are going to be thousands of sites that are going to come up that are going to because there were a large number of books that were published on the idea that this the Bible simply borrowed these stories from the Babylonian and, and Assyrian sources and reworked them to fit the uh, to fit the uh, Israelite or early Jewish mindset because you have to you have to recognize 
that by the time, certainly by the time you get to the middle of the 19th century, Old Testament scholarship in Germany, for the most part, was convinced that the Pentateuch, as we have it, was a late composition. That it, the Pentateuch, as we have it, really didn't come into existence until the period after the exile. Mm. Uh, and again, where where did the exile take place? Where were the exiles located? Well, they were in Babylon. And so the thinking is they were in Babylon, they were influenced by all this uh, Babylonian mythology, the Babylonian legends, and so when they got back to Israel and they're putting together, if you will, their history, they're drawing on all of these Babylonian sources and then reworking them in such a way uh, to, uh, you know, to to build up Israel and to uh, minimize uh, the role, for example, of Assyria in Babylon. Mm. Now, these two individuals you mentioned earlier, J.L. Alexander and W.H. Green, what position or what place did they take in this debate or this discussion? Well, both of them, uh, first of all, both of them studied uh, in Germany. Uh, J.A. Alexander you know, this is this is probably an anachronistic thing to say, but my guess is that Al, that J. A. Alexander was probably uh, something of an autistic savant. Mm. He was absolutely brilliant with languages from the very earliest age. Picked up languages like uh, most other people pick up pennies off of the sidewalk, and uh, he 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 didn't publish. In one sense, he didn't publish a great deal, and in another sense, he did. Uh, he published a, a commentary on Isaiah that was largely a, a compendium of uh, the who's who of Isaiah studies at the time. Uh, he also published a commentary on the Psalms and uh, a few other things, but most of his publications were probably in the B- Biblical Repertory in Princeton Review, and these would have been in the in the form of essays and book reviews. And you have to remember that in the biblical repertory, a book review was not a book review as we think of it today. Generally, what the author would do would be to take two or three, maybe even four or five books on on the same topic, uh, sort of give a brief precy of what's in each of them, but then use that as sort of a starting point for a larger discussion of the issues that were raised uh, or dealt with by these books so that you know, if you're looking for, um, let's say, for example, a review of Schleiermacher's theology, probably what you're going to get is not what we would call a review of Schleiermacher's theology, but a whole discussion of the issues raised by uh, uh, what, you know, early liberal German the- theology. Uh, and Green also, uh, the the faculty at, at Princeton published regularly in the biblical repertory and there are literally thousands of pages uh, of publications from these men that are you know pretty much haven't seen the light of day uh, since since they were published sounds like a dissertation for somebody to do at some point in time <laughs> that would yeah. be quite a quite a work though now we talked off air a little bit about maybe some of the talk maybe discussing some of the situations that were being faced historically culturally, theologically, around the time of Princeton, and maybe then move from there, we can talk a little bit about what started the decline to what we now okay. understand as Princeton Seminary is yeah. what we call liberal. Yeah. The, well, as I say, the influence of the German 
uh, academic studies, both in Old Testament, of course, in New Testament, and in theology, uh, begin to make their way, first of all, into England. And uh, in England, you have the case of uh, around 1850, uh, there was a, a bishop of the Church of England in South Africa by the name of Colenso. And uh, he wrote a book that, that attacked the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, and that caused a big stir uh, in the Church of England. The, uh, if you're familiar with the hymn, The Church's One Foundation by Samuel Stone, that hymn came out of that controversy. Uh, and so the line in there about by schisms rent asunder by heresies distressed – that comes right out of that whole Colenso debate, and mm-hmm. and and William Henry Green, uh, you know, got a copy of Colenso and very quickly published a a response uh, to it, a critique of it, pointing out the weaknesses of Colenso's argumentation. Uh, but uh, that was, in a certain sense, the uh, that was a forerunner uh, of what was to come, a foretaste of what was to come later on in the century. Uh, you had the case of William Robertson Smith, who was a, uh, a Scottish uh, Old Testament uh, professor, and uh, he, his publication in the Old Testament in the Jewish Church caused a huge controversy. Uh, and you know, the uh, the outcome uh, was in a sense, favorable to Smith and hence favorable to what we might call a downgrade in the theological reliability of some of the Scottish schools. And that, of course, makes its way uh, into the United States as well because the the theological professors in the United States were committed to not being, if you will, third-world scholars. Uh, they were committed to being up on the latest in publications and the latest uh, discussions that were taking place and so the influence of uh, British writers in particular, but the German scholars as well, you see that developing in uh, the United States. And so by the time you get to 1890, uh, you have the case of Charles Augustus Briggs, who was a Presbyterian minister, taught Old Testament at Union Seminary in New York. Uh, and uh, what was that case? Just sorry to interrupt. What was that case centering around, though? I mean, that's that. Most people, I think, that know a little bit about this period know the name, yeah. but they yeah, might not know the it, case. It really centered on the whole idea of the inspiration of Scripture, uh, the view of those who who brought Briggs up on charges uh, were of the opinion that his views regarding the Old Testament could not be squared with uh, a the the standard view of the of what we mean when we say the Old Testament is inspired. Uh, it's during this time, this period, that B.B. Uh, Warfield, uh, who was a young professor at Princeton at the time, uh, and A.A. Uh, a. Hodge uh, wrote a an essay, co-wrote an essay on inspiration uh, that is sort of fundamental to the development of the doctrine of inspiration as we see it coming out of uh, of Princeton, and they were uh, William Henry Green, uh, together with Hodge and Warfield, were uh, primary uh, important personalities in in the charges against Hodge. 
Mm. Or I'm sorry, against Briggs. Uh, Briggs was uh, uh, defrocked uh, by the Presbyterian Church. Uh, he joined the Episcopal Church uh, Union Seminary in New York, which was up until that time a Presbyterian seminary, uh, decided to go independent uh, rather than have to let Briggs go. So uh, that's and Union Seminary in New York has been sort of a, uh, I, I think, sort of a cutting edge liberal institution ever since. What was, uh, in your opinion, Dr. Shaw, some of the, well, how do I put it? Some of the critical issues, and we've talked about some of the issues that have affected the Old Testament, so I guess this doesn't just affect that, but certainly Princeton Seminary isn't today what it was Mm -hmm. then. Um, What were, in your view, maybe some of the critical critically defining moments maybe in Old Testament scholarship that signaled the end of its conservative confessional stance? Ooh, I don't know that I can point to one particular, even even a couple of particular events. Certainly the Briggs trial was a turning point. It didn't look in, – in, in a sense, at the time, it looked like a victory for the conservatives. Um, and I suppose at the time it was, but if you read the material on the Briggs trial and then read the material on the Machen trial 40 years, la- on 40 years later, they're very similar. Mm-hmm. And so in, – in, and, and what has happened – or what had happened between the Briggs trial and the Machen trial was that the the theological culture of the Presbyterian Church USA had changed. Uh, the you know the the faculty at Old Princeton up until 1929 had by and large a unified mindset. You know we think of Alexander, we think of Miller, we think of Hodge, we think of Warfield. And William Henry Green and J.A. Alexander were right in line uh, with those guys. But things are taking place in the culture at large. You know, right in the middle of the 19th century, you have the war between the states. Uh, you have the uh, – and, and part of that is due to the influence of uh, abolitionists. And most of the abolitionists were not what we would call evangelical Christians. Uh, many of them were Unitarian. Uh, some of them that were Christian were certainly of a more liberal variety. And so those views began to have a greater cultural influence uh, than they did a- at an earlier time. Uh, in addition, you've got uh, the uh, Industrial Revolution going on. You have the increasing urbanization of the American culture. Uh, you have the uh, – and as connected with the urbanization, you have the same kind of thing going on in the United States in the large cities that you see reflected in the novels of Charles Dickens, uh, the, the, the downtrodden poor, if you will, and that kind of thing. And you have the rise in the United States of what we now call the social gospel, uh, you know, groups that originally were what we would call evangelical, uh, committed to providing for so to meet social needs. So, for example, the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association. Now, we generally today just think of it as the YMCA and don't necessarily think of 
the C in that YMCA standing for Christian. But it was it was a, if you will, a parachurch organization that was established for the purpose of providing safe housing for young men who had moved to the city for new factory jobs. The YWCA, the Young Women's Christian Organization or Christian Association, was the same thing for young ladies: give them a safe place to live mm. uh, while they were in the uh, city. The Salvation Army, uh, which originally began as both evangelistic and outreach-oriented, sort of you know providing for the poor, uh, gradually moved into uh, away from the evangelistic element. And today, we primarily think of the Salvation Army as a, a, a sort of a non-government organization that's uh, intended for uh, social welfare. Uh, so that you've got all of these uh, kind of um, you've got all these things taking uh, taking place in in the larger culture, and they're affecting the church culture. And while the the faculty at Princeton was I think largely of one mind over that whole 117 year period. You had students who came to seminary who were not. Uh, and I think any seminary professor will tell you that most, most people who go to seminary already have their theology pretty well established by the time they come in. Uh, there are very few men who come to seminary and leave with a radically changed view. Hmm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, in a certain sense, Princeton was Princeton was the first Presbyterian seminary that was established. And so it had the sort of preeminence of, of origin. Uh, and it it was the place to go for a lot of uh, uh, for a lot of ministerial students. And they um, and yet they already had their theology developed, at least in framework, by the time they showed up. And and so you would have people uh, going to seminary at Princeton who probably weren't in, in full agreement with uh, the general views of the faculty there. And then well, they would learn what they did at Princeton, but then they would go out and uh, – uh, you know, it, it would be an interesting thing to to run down the Auburn affirmation, the Auburn affirmation, which was a document in 1925 that uh, sort of solidified the uh, modernist uh, versus fundamentalist uh, debate. Uh, laid out all of these fundamentals: the virgin birth, the imminent return of Christ, and these and the inerrancy of the Bible, and said, well. Uh, we can believe all these things, but we don't have to. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting to see how many signers of the Auburn Affirmation were Princeton graduates, and I suspect that there would be more than we would like to think. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting thought. Um, something you said that that sort of um, prompted me to think, and it's a little off our topic, but um, I have always heard it the other way around. Um, where students come to a school, I mean, I guess this is probably more ignorance than anything else, but you, you, students come to school, they learn from their professors, and the reason that they pump out liberal students is because the professors end up going liberal or the staff gets inundated with a liberal influence, and then so they teach this liberalism to the students, and then they go out and they teach their 
liberalism. This is the first time I've ever heard it in reverse. In other words, the students coming in, they've already have their theology grounded. Do you think that's the case today? Do you think students coming into seminaries are that grounded theologically? And I know it's a general, uh, well, very generalistic yeah. type question, but yeah. I, I would say they may not have their theology fully worked out, but they've got the framework of it, and very rarely does that framework really change. Mm. Part of the reason they choose a school, you know, the fact of the matter is uh, students choose seminaries for all kinds of reasons, some of them probably bad, but. Uh, Part of the reason that a student will choose a school is because he feels some affinity for what he understands that school to teach. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, in the 19th century, staunch conservative men would would gravitate toward Princeton because the Princeton view was well known. But they might also gravitate toward Princeton because it was convenient. They lived near to Princeton because there was a certain – uh, panache to the name mm-hmm. associated with the name Princeton. If you had a Princeton degree, uh, I, I it's funny. Even when I was in seminary thirty plus years ago, there was a, a a sense among the students at the other PCUSA schools that that Princeton was privileged, that Princeton was special. Uh, and that and that Princeton grads got special consideration from search committees uh, when they were looking for uh, uh, for pastors. Uh, you know, Princeton just had this mystique, and I, I think to a certain extent it still does. But uh, again, uh, so that the Princeton had a certain draw, but that because of the uh, the things that Princeton could offer. Aside from theology, that is the connection with a uh, with, with a venerable institution, sort of the social cachet that having a Princeton degree uh, uh, put with your name uh, was also a draw. And so, men who might not otherwise be sympathetic with the theology at Princeton would go there for other reasons. Mm-hmm. And of course, then when they left, by and large, they would not have been influenced uh, a great deal by what they were taught. Uh, it would be interesting, something that uh, in some of the reading that I've done in preparation for the conference lecture, it would be interesting to go back and look at some of the students' lecture notes uh, just to see the kinds of comments that students make on the lecture because it's clear from the comments that are made that the students are not always sympathetic with what the professor is saying. That's a very interesting perspective. I guess I never just never considered it that way even in the slightest, so it was of interest when you made that comment. Um, real quick, we're running short on time, uh, Dr. Shaw, but I want to ask you, uh, you know, in a practical sense, what kind of lessons for today do we learn from the Princeton era, uh, at least uh, as it moved from its conservative base to its more liberal um, base that it now seems to have pretty well yeah. entrenched? Well, I'd, I'd say three basic things. Number one, Having a sound faculty is no guarantee that an institution will remain sound. Uh, you know, the kinds of changes that were taking place in the United States in the 19th century and early 20th century 
the cultural changes, the socioeconomic changes, the theological changes that were taking place. Um, you know, in, in a certain sense, it's surprising that Princeton lasted as long as it did as a conservative institution. Uh, but uh, second, that men may be theologically sound and yet, in a certain sense, not sympathetic to retaining a theologically sound institution. Uh, just one name from Princeton that I'll throw out here is a, name by, is a man by the name of Charles Erdman. He seems to have been you know, in full agreement, if you will, uh, with the theological positions of well, Hodge and Warfield mm-hmm. and, and uh, Machen, except that he also had what you might call a broader view, a more inclusive view. And so uh, he didn't want to, if you will, cut off the uh, the more liberal wing of the church. And so when, uh, when uh, Machen and others left Princeton and began uh, uh, Westminster Seminary, Erdman didn't leave. Uh, he he was seems to have been perfectly happy there. Uh, the third thing that I would say is that uh, faculty at an institution have to be aware of the of the changes that are taking place in a culture and how those things not only the the general culture of the of the country. But the theological culture, the church culture, uh, I, I think, in a certain sense, that the old te- that the old Princeton men may not have been particularly sensitive to those kinds of cultural, ecclesiological, and theological changes, and what effect those were having on the students who were then coming in, and what effect those students who, upon graduation, were having on the church as a whole. Uh, you know they they will say you'll you'll read occasionally that uh, if you look at where the seminaries are today, you can tell where the church is going to be in thirty years. Mm. Uh, I think that's true, uh, just based on my own experience, my seminary experience. The things that you're seeing now, if you will, out in the open in the PCUSA, were there at the seminary I attended thirty plus years ago. Yeah, behind closed doors. Right. Yeah. Amazing. Well, it's a very informative discussion, um, Dr. Shaw, and uh, certainly we've just scratched the surface of what um, we could have talked about, and, and certainly even what you're going to talk about at the Spring Theology Conference. And they've given you 45 minute, minutes, it looks like, to, to unpack this uh, topic. So, uh, well, I hope you're well prepared. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't seem like enough time, to be honest, to deal with a, a topic of this uh, of this magnitude. Um, and depth, but um, certainly one of uh, something we should be considering, at least as we look forward in the future. And as you indicated, very, I think, put very well that uh, we are probably exercising behind closed doors what the church is going to see influencing itself in the next 30 years or so. So, Dr. Shaw, I do appreciate your time and for your commitment to this school and to the students and for... um, your labor in this uh, in this uh, spring theology conference. And for those who do not know, uh, Greenville Seminary does have a spring theology conference. They have it every year. Um, this year it is March 13th through the 15th. It is uh, held at Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church in Simpsonville, South Carolina. 
If you want more information, you can contact contact us at the school. You can either do so on the website at gpts.edu. That's gpts.edu for Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Or um, you can simply call us at our phone number, which I don't have in front of me right this moment. Yes, I do. It is area code 864-322-2717. So those are a couple different ways that you can uh, get more information, sign up for the conference if you want to hear more of this kinds of discussion um, being done, as well as other guests that we'll be having at the conference and we'll be talking with as the conference draws closer and closer. So it's a little snapshot of what you can expect in the weeks to come. Again, Confessing Our Hope is the weekly podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. We do this to deal with issues such as the one we're talking about today, issues of a theological and practical nature, issues that affect the church, maybe in 30 years. But regardless, we're not afraid to talk about some of these subjects and some of these issues, and we do so with an eye on helping the body of Christ grow in the relationship with Christ and understanding His Word more and more. Of course, Greenville Seminary stands on the Westminster Confession of Faith as a secondary standard. Um, certainly, the Bible is our authority, and we try to exercise uh, all of our discussions around that as often um, as we do it. So, We hope you've enjoyed this particular broadcast. Stay tuned next week. We'll be having Dr. Nick Wilborn on, and he'll be talking about, and I'm going to say it right this time, he'll be on to talk about the Hodge-Thornwell Exchange. Some of you may have heard of it. He will be on to talk about a little bit about that particular debate that happened and, of course, more about his lecture material that he'll be doing at our Spring Theology Conference. So stay tuned to that. But until then, we do thank you for listening to this particular episode, and God bless.